see it. What did you do? Is he still alive? You coward. You could do all of that, but you couldn't kill him. You weren't saving nobody, you stupid fool. After all that, killing him is mercy. This is the one that blonde lady with the sad eyes had been on the news crying about all week. The one that keeps saying, the Lord only gave her one son and that it was her job to protect him. She ain't gonna now, thanks to you. There ain't much left of him at this point, is there? Can he talk? Can you talk? Can you move? Nothing. How dare you bring me into this? How dare you show me this and have the nerve to ask for help after what you've done? Oh, Jesus Christ, look at his face. Are those bite marks? Why? You know what? Forget that. I don't want to hear your why. Ain't no why in the world is good enough. Does anyone else know about this? Of course, that whiny little parasite Virgil was there. He doesn't look for trouble. He ain't smart enough, but it always finds him. Go up to the house and get him, now. And if you run, so help me God, I will call the police. Go on, get. I'm sorry, my friend, I truly am. I promised to make this quick. You didn't do nothing, but you see, the Lord only gave me one son as well, and it's my job to protect him. But that job ain't easy, and it ain't always right. I hear you lurking in that doorway. Get in here right now. Virgil, you have a hand in this? No, ma'am? That's all you can say is no, ma'am? Were you there when it happened? Did you watch? Did you try to make it stop? No? Well, from where I'm sitting, that makes you a part of it. I have to do something. <laughs> we have to do something. If you want me to fix this, I have to know that we all have something to lose. One goes down, and we all go down. You know what I mean? Son, you cover that boy's ears. He don't need to hear this. Cover his goddamn ears, I said. No easy way out of this, boys. If you want this to go away, he's got to die. Three blows to the head. One, two, three. Virgil, you, and me. And then it has to be done. After it's over, y'all gonna have to cut him up and bury the pieces under the shed. Seal up that hole real tight so nothing gets to him. And you clean up this goddamn mess and lay out new straw. Do y'all understand what I just said? Virgil, you go out to the tool shed and fetch the sledgehammer. Be quick about it. The Lord only gave me one son. That doesn't mean I asked for him. You are wicked. And after this, I can't help you again. All right, Virgil. You're up first. On my count. One. Two. I'm Holly, I'm Leslie, and we, we would be, be dead. dead.
deliverance version. <laughs> I did not know Kathy Bakes was going to come in and do this she's episode. Here today. <laughs> Wild. I mean, she really likes this a lot. She told yeah. me she's a fiend. That's excellent. I know, I can't right? believe you got her for that. I, I know. It was really tough. Yeah. But, yeah. like, she's a fan. Excellent. And she doesn't like to be, like, showy about it because, you know, people yeah. would be hounding her. Right, right, right. So what I'm saying is Kathy Bates is in our group and you don't know which person she is. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Everybody claim it now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she'll share us. <laughs> that, I mean, if she could do that, that would be a delight. Yeah. Does she even have social media? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. Well, holy shit. It has been quite the week for true crime. Oh, man. Woo! At last count, a suspect had been arrested for the murder of former podcast subject Faith Hedgepeth. Mm-hmm. And the Woodlawn Jane Doe has been identified. Robert Durst was finally found guilty of murder. And bone fragments were identified that might be Maura Murray. And the disappearance of Gabby Petito has taken over all of our lives. Yes. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. If you guys want Faith's update or the Reader's Digest version of the Woodlawn Jane Doe case, you can check our Instagram at WouldBeDeadPod or my TikTok at HollywoodBeDead. I made videos for both of these, and I kind of, like, sum them up real quick. And I'm sure that we're going to talk about it in our wrap-up show, Hostmortem, this week. A lot going on. As for Gabby Petito, we've all been watching this case with bated breath. But, yeah. Wow. Everybody has just can't take your eyes off it. And it looks like that they announced early this evening that her body has been found. I don't know if there's medical confirmation as of yet, but she was identified on site. Police say it was her. In the press conference, they immediately offer condolences to her parents. And her father has made an Instagram post um, with her standing in front of angel wings. Mm -hmm. Like, rest in peace type thing. So, it's her. Yeah. We'll be providing you guys with coverage of this case in one way or another. We've been discussing how we're going to handle it. Um, But it's going to happen soon, and I promise that. And we'll do it as, as fully as we possibly can, given that as of now, there's still no cause of death. And her fiancé is still on the run. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about how we can deal with this. But don't worry, you guys are going to get this case or some of it from us soon. <sighs> so Gabby's case has kept many of us up all night for the past week, you know? Just like looking at your phone, yeah. scrolling mm-hmm. endlessly. Yeah. I don't know about you, Leslie, but when I don't get enough sleep, mm-mm. No, I mean, look at me. I get moody, miserable, mm-hmm. bags under my eyes. I make bad food choices. I don't work out. It's just all bad. It's you really know, gross. Right? It's no good. You're looking at it right now, and it's you're probably just disgusted. Horrifying. I'm so sorry. Scariest I'm, thing I've seen all week. I'm a ghoul. I'm <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> but one thing really does help me rest easy at night sometimes. Yeah. It really, like, takes my mind off, lets me sleep. And mm-hmm. that is a little dose of validation. Oh. Yeah. Tell me more. So relaxing. Mm-hmm. You know, it rhymes. It's not rhymes, but it's similar to valerian. Oh. Valerian validation. Put you right to sleep. So if you want to help us with that, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. Five, Re- five, five. Yes. All the fives, please. Ratings and reviews are the only thing that open doors, and we sure do appreciate it every time you leave us one. And, and have wanna, fun with it. Right? I, yeah. I mean, I want to know what's on the other side of that door. What door? The door that the five-star reviews open. Oh, man. <laughs> We have some. Maybe it's cracked. Ooh. Maybe more, and it will just like. Yeah. 
It's like Bed Bath and Beyond. And Beyond. <laughs> Bed Bath and Five Star Reviews. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> I want to go there. Cool. So yeah, guys, it's fall. Make your validation pumpkin spiced or apple cider flavored. Mm. Right? We're all here for a good time. Uh, and if you want even more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, you can support us on Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you not only keep this podcast moving forward, but you also get access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem. We always have so many things to say. Yeah. Our uh, monthly patrons-only podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, extra mini-sodes, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, a special gift from us, and more. And if all of that is too much, we totally get it. Doing things is super hard. You can simply share any of our posts to your social media feed, tell us when you're listening, post about your favorite episode, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell that faceless person in another county that you play internet games with. They could be anyone, we don't know. Then your friends and maybe a murderer, maybe a 10-year-old boy, or maybe a cool adult gamer can become fiends. And we can all hang out together. I'm going to throw you a curveball. What's their screen name? Oh. <laughs> I just ruined oh, Leslie's man. life. Oh, man. Okay. Just make it at the name that was in your head. Well, I had the name Chad in my head. This is a good one because that's okay. an incel name. So yeah. he would definitely be on the internet. Right. Um. Oh, God. And Smash is coming up too. So like at Chad Smasher 19... That's perfect. <laughs> Chad's measure 19. Woo! Smash that like button. Yeah. So, like, maybe that guy's going to be our fiend now. If someone really has that screen name anywhere, find them. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, find them. That's all I want. Oh, man. What if Chad's measure 19 finds us? I hope he has a lot of followers. Me too. <laughs> And lastly, don't forget to keep an eye out for details on our October 30th show and costume party at Kate May Brewing Company. It's going to be a blast. We love costumes. We love their beer. They also have um, options that are non-alcoholic mm -hmm. for our fiends that do not care for cocktails. We also love costumes, so please go all out. We're going to, obviously. I can't wait. I can't either. And uh, I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? I don't think I do, Holly. Oh, there it is. Down <laughs> in your deliverance accent now. <laughs> Kathy Bates is listening, just so you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kathy Bates. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even her real voice. I know. <laughs> it's just how she always sounds on film. <laughs> kind of does, yeah. She always has some kind of gritty accent. Yeah. Well, if you have nothing further, all right then, on with the show. Christine Collins had been unlucky in love. We've all been there. As a young woman, she fell madly in love with a man named Walter Collins, and the two were married in 1916. Then, in 1918, the pair had a son, who they named Walter Collins Jr. I have such mixed feelings about juniors. Can you yeah. name somebody after yourself? Why? Why do you need to junior it? Oh, true. Give them their own. I guess. What if I was like, my daughter's name is Holly Jr.? Yeah, what, didn't we figure out what that is? No. They talk about it on Ted Lasso. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> His name is Leslie, and he's a female junior. That's right. <laughs> oh, but yeah, what is that, though? They said it's something. Oh, it's I like don't a, know. Oh. You're gonna have, you go on. I'm going to find you're it. You're going to have to find out what I, it is. I died <laughs> when he said it. <laughs> 
But shortly after the birth of their beautiful baby boy, and Walter was a beautiful child, Christine discovered that her husband was not who she thought he was. As it turned out, Walter Sr. was actually an ex-con named Walter Joseph Anson. Walter Sr. was involved in some super shady business. You see, he liked to rob train conductors at gunpoint. Then he would take all of their valuables and run. This is some Elmer McCurdy shit right there. In 1910, Walter Sr. was sentenced to 10 years for four counts of armed robbery, but had only served a fraction of his sentence before being paroled. A little jail time couldn't stop old Walt Sr., though, and once again, he soon went right back to his life of crime. And this is all unbeknownst to Christine. And returning to his life of crime was a decision that would bring his life crashing down around him in 1923, when he was caught yet again and sentenced to eight, sentence four, excuse me, eight counts of armed robbery and thrown this time into Folsom Prison. You know, the Johnny Cash prison? I imagine he could, like, hear a train a-coming, not a lot of sunshine, (laughs) some shit like that. I don't know. That's what he said. Anyway, with Walter Sr. in jail, Christine was left to care for little Walter, who by this time was about five years old, and she had him all on her own. So just mom and little Walter facing the world. Christine had found them a place to live in the Mount Washington area of Los Angeles, and found herself a job as a telephone operator. Now, this meant that she would have been at an old-timey switchboard connecting calls all day long. Because remember, it's 1924. Callers spoke to an operator at a central office who would then connect a cord to the proper circuit in order to complete the call. So you'd have to, like, talk to the operator and be like, connect me to contact 546. Love it. So fun fact, during this time, operators were in total control of every phone call made and had the ability to listen to whatever they wanted. Can you imagine? That'd be great. That is so tempting. Mm -hmm. You could listen to any and all phone calls. I mean, it's a huge invasion of privacy, but, like, what if the gossip was super good? It probably was. I'm sure it was so much of the time, because you don't think anyone's listening, but they were. It was also a good job for women at the time. That was, like, one that they could hold down and keep. Um, But it definitely could be tedious. You spend the whole day at a switchboard plugging stuff in. Not a lot of notable things about Mount Washington, the area of Los Angeles they lived in. Mostly it's a safe middle-class neighborhood. It would seem that Christine had been able to make a nice life for her and her son, so she did a good job. That is until March 10th of 1928. On that mild spring day, Christine's son Walter had been outside playing with a bunch of neighborhood kids, and she was then able to steal a few moments for herself. Parents know that alone time is hard to come by especially if you're a single parent, especially if you're a working single parent. So in the early afternoon, when Walter ran in to ask Christine for a penny to go to the movies with his friends, she was more than happy to hand him a little change and send him on his way. By this time, Walter was 10 and able to do some things all by himself. I will remind you that this was a much different time. While we are all too aware in this day and age of the dangers children's face when they are sent out on their own, in 1928, it was really common behavior to let your kid just go to the movies. And like you told us before, kids would spend whole days at the movies. Yeah, absolutely. So that wasn't like a weird thing to do. Mm-mm. But Leslie, why don't you tell us a little, a little more about 1928 so we can kind of tell what things were like back then. What was the world like? Sure. So the first U.S. air-conditioned office building opened in San Antonio. Luxurious. For sure. Um, Remember that fact because it'll come back to another date. Okay. Logging it in my head. 
Uh, Mickey Mouse makes his first appearance in Steamboat Willie. Aw. Babe Ruth was playing for the Yankees, and he ended his season with 54 home runs, which was six less than the prior year. Oh, that's a lot. It is a lot. The New York Daily News published the first photograph of an execution, uh, Ruth Snyder, in Sing Sing Correctional Facility by electric chair after they hired an unknown photographer to witness and secretly photograph the execution by using a single-use camera strapped to his ankle and wired to a trigger release up his pant leg. That is wild. I know. And was it a lady? You said Ruth? I think that was or was it not necessarily a... Hired uh, for an execution were Ruth Snyder. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it wasn't I mean, Ruth No, Sn- I think that was the photographer. Oh, okay. That, was, that would make sense, yeah. I was going to say, a woman executed at that time is super uncommon. Right. But a woman went in there and took that picture? Yes, badass Ruth. Or maybe it was a him. It was a female junior. <laughs> <laughs> we have to figure out that. I couldn't find it, but I, I remember know. being like, that was so good. <laughs> Whoever knows that line, I'm going to watch that episode. I know, right? The Lights of New York, an American crime drama, was the first movie to be filmed entirely with sound. Ooh, a talkie. Yeah. The fact that shaving doesn't make hair grow back thicker, darker, or faster was first proven in a clinical study in 1928 by Mildred Trotter, which is funny because I still still say say that. that. Yeah. Huh. So here's why... False information is important not to give. (laughs) I love where you went with that. That was so good. You you got it. You got around to it. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In 2009, art historian. Oh, I did not look up this name. Here we go. (laughs) Is it French? No. I hope not. (laughs) Gurgly? Ger, 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 jelly, ger, gurgly. Yeah, his barky. name is Gurgly. <laughs> gurgly Barky. How is it spelled? G E R. Okay. G L Y. Oh man. Gurgly Barky. B R A K I. Was watching Stuart Little. <laughs> Maybe Gurgly. So yeah. So in 2009, an art historian. Yeah, watching Stuart Little. Was watching Stuart Little when he spotted. Uh, Robert Bernays, Sleeping Lady, a lost painting not seen since an exhibit sale in 1928. And it was in Stuart Little? Yeah. That's this, so Okay. After a years-long mission, he tracked it to an assistant set designer's home who bought the six-figure painting for only $500 for the film. <gasps> but what I love about this story is that it reminds me of you, Holly, when mm. we were watching Twilight, and you <laughs> like are the only person that would have noticed the what was it like the taxidermy? very valuable songbird taxidermy yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i just thought i was like here's this man just like holly be like i know how much that costs fucking rare painting yeah, yeah. i understand you guy yeah. i totally get it <laughs> just watching stuart little <laughs> stuart little too how bizarre i know priceless art and stuart little you know wow gotta make that house fancy for the mouse yep <laughs> uh the lazy boy recliner was Invented. Comfy. Pedro Flores, a Filipino immigrant to the United States, opened the Yo-Yo Manufacturing Company in Santa Barbara, California. Mm. The Iron Lung, or Drinker Respirator, mm-hmm. a an airtight metal box with air pumps that could pull air in or out of the lung, 
was created by Lewis Shaw and Philip Dinker. Drinker. And you can see one at the Mütter Museum, and you should go there and look at it. It's amazing to behold. Uh, May 1st, 1928 is Lay Day. That was when it began. Lay Day is a celebration of Hawaiian culture or the Aloha spirit. People commonly celebrate by giving gifts of lays to one another. Schools also put on plays and elect a Lay Day court of kings and queens to represent the different islands. Each island has its own symbol that is composed of a color and a flower. And then the uh, the saying to remember is May Day is Lay Day in Hawaii Day. Oh. I like it. Okay. And then this is my favorite fact of 1928. 51 frogs entered the first annual frog jumping jubilee. <gasps> jubilee? Yeah. That's a fun one. Yeah. That was good. All right. 1928 was the time. <laughs> it was the time. There was so much going on. I didn't really describe anything. <laughs> no, I just wanted to know what it was like with some stuff that was going on in 1928. Yeah. What's some stuff that was going on? I'm speaking really well. That's right. As well as I do. Oh, so. man. You guys were a little backwards today. <laughs> My son had his birthday party with his friends. Cute. They did a ropes course at the zoo. It's been a lot of a lot of day. <laughs> anyway, Leslie, as you had previously mentioned, um, at this time, I think you said movies just like ran back to back to back to back, right? Oh, yeah. They just continue. Yeah, there wasn't like a time. So they you just, just kind of hopped in on them. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you were a, like a tribe of little kids with a penny, you just bought one ticket, and then could could spend the day at the movies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this wouldn't have raised any eyebrows at all. And it seemed that Walter had done just that. But when it began to grow dark out, Christine began to worry a little. That's a long time to be at the movies. Mm-hmm. She went outside to wait for Walter, hoping to see him running down the block, smiling and waving like he usually did at any moment. But Walter never came. When it began to get late, Christine walked around the neighborhood looking for signs of him, hoping he got distracted in a game of stickball or marbles. But all the kids had gone in for the day. Christine then found herself knocking on the doors of all of Walter's little friends, seeing if maybe he had been playing and lost track of time. Perhaps one of his friend's families had given him dinner, and he was having too much fun to leave. All of them told Christine, though, that they hadn't seen Walter, all of the little friends, not the parents, obviously. They said they hadn't seen Walter and since, since that afternoon when they were all at the movies together. Hmm. They said he left. That's the last time they saw him. And then Christine's heart sank. She ran home and called the police, who went right to work looking for Walter. Oh, so she called the damn cops right away. Yes, she did. As soon as she found out from all of his friends that he didn't go home with anyone, she was like, okay, police time. Now, this isn't incredibly common in the stories we tell for the cops to immediately get on a situation. Mm -hmm. But Walter's disappearance was an immediate media sensation. Mm. The Los Angeles police and area citizens were searching for Walter day and night. His case made nationwide news and tips poured in about where little Walter might be. And if this seems a bit intense, because lots of kids go missing and no one ever says anything about it, Well, there's kind of a reason why. You see, three months before Walter's disappearance, a 10-year-old girl named Marion Parker had gone missing in the same area of Los Angeles, and it ended up in the most gruesome way possible. Mm. Just for reference, Marion had been left in Lafayette Square, or not left, she had been taken from Lafayette Square, which is just 17 minutes by car from Mount Washington. So this is close by. Marion had been signed out of school by a man who claimed he worked for her father. 
This man told the school that there had been an accident and Marion's father was injured. He said he had to bring Marion along to be with her family, and the school, without asking for any further identification, let her go. Because in 1928, they just trusted that if you said you were someone, that's who you were, mm-hmm. and everything would be fine. This day and age, if you walked into a school and you're like, yeah, I work with somebody's parents, they'd be like, mm, no, thank you. I need all your credentials. I need references. Mm-hmm. I need pictures. <laughs> yep, exactly. I need your last physical. Yeah. Marion was reported missing that evening, and the next day her father began to get ransom letters demanding sums of $1,500, which is equivalent in 2020 money to $22,608. But he demanded the cash in gold, Hmm. and the letters were signed with various titles, including Fate, Death, and The Fox. Now, I know what you're thinking. Everybody in late 1920s Los Angeles just walks around with a pocket full of gold, right? Yeah. No. No. It was insane even then. (laughs) When you're like, (laughs) I want gold! What? (laughs) But Marion's father, desperate to get his daughter back, met at the predetermined location and handed over the money in fucking gold certificates. Hmm. He worked for a bank, so he was able to get them. Oh. After the exchange had been made, the assailant ran back to his car and drove away, throwing Marion's (gasps) horribly mutilated body from a window as he fled. (gasps) Mm -hmm. Marion had suffered a horrifying fate. Her limbs had all been removed, her eyes were fixed open with wires, and she was disemboweled. Her abdominal cavity was then stuffed with rags. Inexplicable. Horrifying. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Marion's murderer was quickly identified as William Edward Hickman, a 19-year-old who actually was a former co-worker of Marion's father. Oh, my God. I know. Ultimately, the gold was his undoing, as paying for stuff in promised gold is unusual, to say the least. Mm-hmm. After William was apprehended, he made a full confession, telling authorities that Marion had suffered all of her mutilations while she was alive. What? Oh, my God. He claimed that a supernatural god he called Providence had willed him to commit this heinous act and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Hmm. Now, if that's the case, why'd you ask for ransom? Yeah, that's weird. Mm-hmm. Well, but he also asked it in, in gold. gold. The guy is clearly... Off the right, wagon. but you can't just rip a 10-year-old apart limb from wi- limb and go right back to work. William was convicted of the murder and hanged for his crimes. And, like, that's the most awful shit I've ever heard, so. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I mean, definitely just kill him. But. Oh, for sure. So, as you might have guessed, the Los Angeles Police Department and the people of Los Angeles were on high fucking alert when it came to missing children after that. Mm-hmm. Even though William Hickman was in prison at the time, Walter's disappearance set off a whole lot of panic. For five months, the police searched for Walter with no outcome, and the public began to turn on them. They hadn't been able to save Marion, and now what would become of Walter? Could the police not keep their children safe? Could they keep anyone in the community safe? Was anyone safe at all? So the police are sweating at this point, obviously. And it's not like the five months after Walter's disappearance were quiet either. Mm. 
Just two months after Walter, brothers Lewis and Nelson Winslow, aged 12 and 10 respectively, went missing. Lewis and Nelson had been at a Pomona Yacht Club where they were attending a meeting for their model boat club. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. I tried to find out which yacht club, but um, there are quite a few of them in that area, so mm-hmm. they didn't say. The boys left together to walk home, and they were never seen again. Hmm. Pomona is just 35 minutes away from Mount Washington by car. Again, we're all still in the same area. In addition to all of that, the Los Angeles County Police Department was sitting on another bit of information. On February 28th of 1928, yes, just 11 days before Walter would go missing, and yes, it was 11 because 1928 was a leap year. I checked. Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies found a burlap bag containing a headless body in a La Puente ditch. A male teenager had been shot through the heart with a 22 caliber rifle. It would be some time before this body was identified, and he's only identified in one or two of the copious sources, but they state that his name is Alvin Gothia. Authorities, though, simply refer to him as the headless Mexican. Okay. Which is fucking awful. And I hate it so much, so I'm not going to use it. So even if it kind of breaks with the storyline, we're just going to use Alvin's name as though he's been identified Mm because he was a person with a future and a family. Mm -hmm. And so the police at this point are pretty desperate to find one kid, any kid. This needs to stop before full-scale pandemonium breaks out in Los Angeles County. And as luck would have it, five months after Walter's disappearance in August of 1928, a boy claiming to be Walter, was found in DeKalb, Illinois. Tips had been pouring in, and people were spotting Walters everywhere. This is not uncommon in missing persons cases. So, like, little side note, uh, my friend Ryan, who was our murderer in our camp photo shoot. Oh, yeah. Lovely, lovely man. He's the best. Hi, Ryan. Um, So he was a redheaded child living within an hour's radius at the time of Mark Heimbaugh's disappearance. And he was mistaken for Mark more than once. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember him saying that. It's pretty complicated, and that seems like a pretty terrifying experience. But it does happen. People, when they have that picture in their head, they see you see them everywhere. Right. Anyway, so this particular tip-off seems legit because the boy himself was saying that he was Walter. Letters and photographs were exchanged with Walter's mother and the boy. And eventually, Christine, Walter's mother paid for the boy to be brought to Los Angeles, a fact with I, which I think is fucking insane. He should have been brought home by the authorities. Right. Why did it fall on Christine to bring him home? That is beyond me, especially since the police really, really wanted this happy ending. Yeah, that's why wouldn't, confusing. Why wouldn't you go be the hero? Yeah. We're going to go save him. We're going to go get him and bring him home. This is the PR that the LAPD really, really needed at this point in time. Not only were kids going missing seemingly left and right, but there was also a lot of other scandals and corruption happening with them. So to combat that, they organized a highly public reunion between Christine and Walter and invited the press. So they could, re- they could organize this reunion and invite the press, but they couldn't pay for his travel. They made yeah. his single mother do that. Did they make her, or was she just like... They didn't make her, but they weren't going to bring him. Right. They were like, okay, okay, well, if you want him home, you got to fly him home. Mm. I I, I don't know why that fact sticks with me so hard, but I can't. It's it's corroborated everywhere. 
And I don't know why they didn't just bring him home. Right. Anyway, so Walter arrives on a plane. There are lots of photographs of this event. I will put them in our photo suite. Christine and the police and lots of members of the press are standing there waiting. This is at a time where you could, like, wait at the little drop-down gate for someone. Walter gets off the plane, runs to his mother, and then everything falls apart. Christine, who the police thought would be sobbing with joy, did not embrace the boy back and flatly told the authorities and the press that this was not her son. The boy, however, said that he was Walter. He claimed that an unknown man, claiming to be his real father, asked him to go with him to buy a new suit and then brought him across the country. He had stopped in Illinois, where police brought him in as he was seen by several locals and reported to the police as the missing boy. Now, this goes with a little bit of the story because the one thing Christine had feared when Walter went missing was that one of her ex-con husband's, like, enemies, someone Mm who he had crossed paths with in one way or another, had taken Walter as some kind of retaliation or was going to try and ransom him. She just thought, like, oh, God, this has to be connected to his dad who has committed so many crimes. So that kind of thing, like, it might have rang a little bit true, but Mm -hmm. also, like, this wasn't her kid. Right. She was emphatic. This was not her son. And as a parent, you know your own child. Especially when they're 10 years old. Exactly. It had only been five months since the last time she saw him, too. And even if he did look just a little different, a parent knows how their child walks, talks, sleeps, sits, rolls their eyes, laughs, breathes, smiles. You know how your child smells. If she says it's not her kid, it's not her kid. But the police... Well, they still really wanted a win. So Christine was told by the officer in charge of the case, police captain J.J. Jones, to take the boy home to, quote, try him out for a couple weeks. (laughs) Just going (laughs) to try him on, see what it's like, see if it fits. Yep. (laughs) That is patently insane. Oh, my God. Like, new Walter is just going to be like a fine replacement. You have a kid. It's fine. Just shut up and enjoy Walter 2.0, okay? Mm -hmm. It's fine. That was the mentality these police seemed to project. But Christine, who was unsure, all she could really do was hesitantly agree. She's like, all right, Mm. I guess I'll take him for a while. So she brought him home, but she's not really satisfied with Walter 2.0. After three weeks, Christine brought the boy back to the police and told Captain Jones that this was not her son. She had even obtained dental records to prove it wasn't her son. Mm -hmm. Which was a real bummer for the LAPD, because they really thought that whole, like, try him out thing was going to work. Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, what is even worse, though, is that even if she was just like, I will take this child just to, like, get away from all these cameras and everything. Mm -hmm. We'll just go home. But you're still going to look for my son, right? Like, no, they were probably like, done. They were. Yeah. They absolutely were. So did the police take the child back and apologize? I mean, they have dental records that say it's not him. No, of course not. They doubled down on Christine and told her that she was a terrible mother who didn't even recognize her own son. I hate this. Yep. Captain Jones told her she was clearly just trying to make the police look bad. And then he had her committed to the psychiatric ward of the Los Angeles County Hospital under a Code 12. But, like, now what happens to the boy? (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) What is a code 12, you ask? Yes, sorry. (laughs) It's not great. It just means that a person is being difficult or resistant 
And so the cops want them to go away. You go to jail, you go to a mental hospital, doesn't matter, whatever gets them out of the way. Can we do that as parents with our children? Right. (laughs) (laughs) They can't use this anymore, by the way. Code 12 is gone. I'm just going to start yelling that in my house. Code Code 12! (laughs) (laughs) For anybody who knows, that's going to be a fun inside joke. (laughs) That's our next t-shirt. It just says Code Code 12. 12. I just, I also like the fact that they just went, you're a crazy woman. I'm going to gaslight you into the hospital. Mm-hmm. So nuts. And yeah, so like, I wonder why you can't code 12 someone anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just on par for our stories, though. Absolutely. But something about this whole situation wasn't sitting right with Captain Jones. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he decided to question the boy himself. Now, Why didn't he do this the second Christine had told them Walter wasn't their son is beyond me. It's probably because his wife had like a pot roast for him on and he just had to get home. I don't have time for this. My wife is going to be so mad. He doesn't really want to look good. Just take him so we look like we rescued him. Yeah, just please. Also, why didn't he do this when Christine brought the kid back after trying him for three weeks with dental records? Proving that he wasn't the real Walter. That's also beyond me. Why he didn't do this before slandering Christine and locking her up in the hospital is fucking beyond me. Walter 2.0 had been evaluated by psychiatrists and other police officers, but Captain Jones really put the squeeze on him. Eventually, the boy admitted that he wasn't Walter after all. Of fucking course. Wow, I'm, like, surprised. Aren't you look so shocked. Yeah. Like, your face is just pure shock. What? Code 12. This boy was actually 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins Jr. An honest-to-God junior. Oh, well, see? Two juniors. A runaway originally from Iowa. Arthur's mother had died when he was young, and his father had remarried a cruel woman who treated poor Arthur terribly. One day, Arthur was at a roadside cafe in Illinois when a drifter approached him and told him that he strongly resembled a missing boy named Walter from California. And so, Arthur and this drifter came up with a plan for him to impersonate the missing boy. Arthur wanted to get away from his stepmother and go to Hollywood so that he could meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix. Tom Mix was in a ton of westerns, most of them silent films, but he was Hollywood's first and therefore defining cowboy. So that's Mm -hmm. his thing. He wanted to meet a famous cowboy and get away. Now don't worry, I'm going to get to the chicken coop soon. This whole story is one long winding road of insanity. But before I get to that, it's not often that people attempt to pass off a fully grown child as another child. Sure, it happens once in a blue moon, but not as often as the strange occurrence of being switched at birth which this just feels similar to me. Yeah. Infants who have only seen their mother one time while she was screaming in agony are a lot easier to pass off. Mm Mm-hmm. Or if you, like, haven't really seen the baby at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Leslie, do you happen to, like, have any stories about that? Do you know any switch-to-birth stories? Yeah, 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 I I do. I just knew that was something you knew about. Yeah, so I will say that a lot of these stories, they're really annoying because— most of them could have been avoided if the nurse or doctor just believed what the moms were saying. And that is a running theme. Yeah. <sighs> Almost 
all of them that I had read and the a few that here we're going to talk about aren't necessarily like this right away, mm-hmm. but almost all of them were the mom got their baby back and said, this isn't mine. And they were like, yes, it is. And they were like, no, it's just a different weight. It's the feet are different. It's a different height. The hair's longer. They're, it's shorter. And they're just like, no, oh, it's wearing different clothes. I put my sister, my sister gave an outfit for me to place on my child, which I placed on it. You took it to do whatever you were doing with. And oh now it's God. in a whole different outfit. And the nurse said, um, don't worry. I think I just switched the outfits of the babies instead of like going back and checking. Oh, my God. She was just like, no, 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 no. It's fine. I just switched the outfits. And then years later, she was like, I switched the babies. So here's the thing about like just a weird little side note about your own child. There are weird things about like just for a mostly for a mother. I can't really speak to fathers, but I can speak as someone who has given birth to my own children, there are weird things that you recognize in your own child. And one of the weirdest for me was like, my babies smell like my own skin is on another person. Mm. You know, like you smell a specific way and you know what your skin smells like. My baby's skin smells exactly like mine, which sounds like a weird serial killer thing to say, but (laughs) no, it's, it's not. And I bet there are like, sound off. Parents, let me know if you have other similar little things like that. Like, oh, her fingernails were identical to mine. Or, oh, this one weird little thing is exactly this. It's so home-like to me Mm -hmm. that I would recognize it anywhere. So if someone says, like, that ain't my kid, that's not your kid. Like, that's just, you have to believe them. Right. Sorry. Tell me your story. Okay. So the first one. And a lot of, so before... Was it like 1970s, I think, was the era when they started a lot more hospitals were putting like name tags on the kids right away. Gotta label those yeah, babies. Gotta label them. <laughs> um, and this was happening beforehand, but almost every hospital at this point was doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of stories from like 1928 era where like this probably did happen. They're just juggling babies. Yeah, just- you don't even know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so I tried to find stories that were a little bit um, sure. like more modern. Uh, all right, so in 1994, and oh, we have our French listeners that might be. Oh, so, no, I'm so and, sorry, French Canada. And Canny's France. I'm sorry. Two girls were born with jaundice at the same hospital on the same day. The hospital only had one jaundice incubator available at the time, so they placed both baby girls in it. When returning the girls back to their parents, the nurse had accidentally switched them. Both mothers commented on the length of the baby's hair, one saying that the hair seemed longer and the other mentioned that the other babies looked shorter. The nurses each gave the incubator as the reason for the longer or shorter length. Oh, no. They were like, we shrank your baby. Yeah. They were just like, they were like, uh, well, because they were in the incubator, the hair got longer. Because they were in the incubator, their hair got shorter. That is the most faulty science in the world. Jaundice lights are like like black light UV light situations. Yes. Like Billy Rubin lights or whatever. So instead of just double checking and being like... Does this look like the right length of your child's hair? Oh, no. (laughs) So, yeah, they just, they couldn't even think that, like, maybe we switched these two baby girls that were born on the same day, both with jaundice. I had jaundice. Maybe it was me. Maybe it was you. Over, were you born in 1994? No. Okay. (laughs) It's not you. Or in France. Are you French? No. I'm 
obviously not French. No. So over the years, one of the mothers, Sophie Serrano, had people question whether her daughter was really hers. The daughter had darker skin and frizzy hair, unlike both her parents. Some people even gossip that Sophie must have had an affair. Oh, no. After 10 years, Sophie's husband, uh, like his suspicions strengthened and ordered a paternity test. And then they found out that neither of them were the parents oh. of this girl. Well, yeah, that'll happen. You're switched to birth. Yeah. But Sophie felt an even stronger connection to her daughter upon finding out. The couple took legal action against the clinic and the other mother was alerted. Both women did not want their biological daughter's return, feeling that the girls were right where they were meant to be. Aww. And the clinic had to pay over $2 million to the families involved. And that's, that's like, uh, pretty often. Like, once they find out if it's, especially if it's been, like, over a year. Mm-hmm. Even if it's, like, a couple of days. Sometimes the moms are like, I don't, I don't know. I've, like, connected with this baby. It's, it has to be the hardest Yeah, thing. that's awful. So another one, this one, it was a foster care mix-up. So in 1971, a woman named Laura Kane gave birth to twin boys. She named George and Marcus in Ottawa, Ontario. She was a single mother and struggled to support both her and her boys, so she decided to temporarily place the boys in foster care until she could figure out what to do. But it wasn't long before the baby daddy, Randy Holmes, returned, and they got married, and then they— They quickly got married, so this was only, like, two months had passed. And they asked the foster care to return their children, which was, like, fine. They were, like, waiting to get it back. That's a very, like, Albert Fish situation. We're like, I'm going to put you in the orphanage. Yes, that's what it reminded me. later. Yeah. They happily gave her the two boys back. It wasn't until the boys were 21 that they learned that there was a mix-up at the foster home. Oh, no. George was working at a theater on the Carleton University campus. When a group of students noticed he looked a lot like a fellow student, their friend Brent Tremblay. (gasps) They arranged for the two to meet, and they instantly hit it off. It didn't take them long to realize that Brent was actually his real twin. Oh, my God. This meant that the real Marcus was adopted to this other family. Uh, Laura and Randy were handed their son, George, and completely, and like a completely strange baby. Wow. It's unclear if the foster home realized their mistake. Like, maybe they, like, I don't know if the foster home got Marcus adopted and Mm -hmm. was like, because, like, that mom's probably not coming back. We'll just adopt this one. And then when she came back, they were like, well, here's the same age baby. Let's just hear. We got to give her two. (laughs) if they accidentally let that family adopt a baby that they didn't think was I feel like it's that option. Yeah. I don't know. I like the thought but, of them but being if like, a family, just put in another baby. Well, but but also like that family, because I because they don't talk about um, th- the whole family kind of stayed quiet after this. Mm-hmm. I think they were embarrassed. I don't know because it took so after eighteen months, George and Brent involved the families. They were mostly concerned with how obviously everybody would react, but mostly Marcus because mm-hmm. he would then find out like that he wasn't a twin at all. Like that has to also feel weird. Oh my god, that's so weird. Yeah. And then they got quiet, like media doesn't talk to them. So part of me wonders if that family that adopted the kid was like, I want that one. And then the home was just like, okay. Like, I wonder if it was something weird and nobody wants to get the story out. That's so weird. Um, Okay, here's another one. 
After Marta gave birth in Azul, Argentina in 1974, she was quite alarmed when the baby brought to her afterwards, oh, this is what I was telling you about, wasn't wearing the clothes she had bought for him. The nurse apologized and explained that she had simply switched the clothes of the babies that were next to each other at the nursery. Why? Why, did why you, wouldn't you just why say, did you oh, take I off the babies? Of, yeah. I don't, 34, 34 years later, it was revealed that it was the lives and not the clothes. And um, ironically, the families of the boys lived only a few blocks away from each other. In fact, the one boy, so his name was Javier, happened to meet his biological father in 2007. He was amazed by the physical resemblance he had with the man and the man's other children. Finally, in 2009, the mix-up was confirmed by DNA tests and the case was put under investigation, although the nurse that switched the infants was never located. Oh, my God. (sighs) She just didn't want to admit her mistake. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you just be like, oh, yeah, okay, let me get your baby. Yeah. That's a crazy thing to, like, go all in on. I know. I know. Another story that I didn't write down, which I thought was interesting, though, was these two mothers in Thailand, they gave birth at the same day at the same hospital, and they both passed out during childbirth. Oh, no. They had a boy. One had a boy. One had a girl. Okay. The nurses switched them. Oh, no. The mothers didn't realize which sex that they had because when they woke up, then their babies were, like, get, uh, like getting cleaned and they didn't mm-hmm. know. And when, so when they got it back, they were like, oh, I had a boy. Like, they didn't know what oh it was. God. The children ended up in school together and became friends. And when they, like, met each other's families, they were, like, slowly realizing how much they resembled their the other families. Could you even imagine? And part of me is wondering, like, if— when they gave birth, like, I don't know where the fathers were yeah. during this time, but if it's, like, did they have an inkling? Like, like I don't—I feel like you had—I don't think it was a boy. They didn't say—like, I don't know. It's so weird. But, yeah, there's it's so bizarre. many times that they—I don't know. It's—there are so many stories. There so was like, more than I thought. Please believe mothers. Mm-hmm. Just believe mothers. And they're like, that's probably not my kid. Yeah. It probably isn't. I know. That was very interesting. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. And um, for our patrons, when you hear this week's host mortem, I have a special story for you. That's a personal one, one uh, oh, that man. I of a family member that I know. Oh no, really? Mm-hmm. And I'll save that for there because it'll take me a little while to tell. So oh, I'm pretty excited to hear it, though. Okay, so after Arthur came out with the truth that he was not actually Walter. He was returned to his father and stepmother, which is a little sad because she was mean and he wanted to get away from her. And Christine was immediately let out of the hospital while the police groveled at her feet. Just kidding. They kept her in there for 10 more days. No reason. No reason. She was obviously not lying. It's because they just don't care. Well, it's also like, I feel like it's so appearance-based. They're just like, I don't want people to know. I don't want people to know. Let's just keep her in there a little while longer so she doesn't say anything. Right. Ugh. That and also, well, yes, that definitely, and also them trying to figure out what to do next. Oh, for sure. So while Christine was being unnecessarily confined, another very interesting thing happened. The Los Angeles police received a letter from the Canadian-American consul. Canadian police had gotten an extremely disturbing report from a a woman named Winifred Clark. She sent them a signed report from her 19-year-old daughter, Jessie, who had gone out to Wineville, California, also in Los Angeles County, which is just 28 minutes by car from Pomona, 
and a little over an hour from Mount Washington. Jessie had been in Wineville to check on the welfare of her little brother, Sanford. Sanford, who was only 13, was living on the ranch with his uncle, 21-year-old Gordon Stewart Northcott. Sanford had been out there for two years under the pretense that he was helping his uncle build a ranch and get it running. As soon as Jessie arrived in Wineville, she knew something was wrong with her brother. That very night, when Gordon had gone to sleep, Sanford told Jessie that he had been through a horrifying two years. Sanford said from the minute he arrived at the ranch, his uncle Gordon had begun to abuse him both physically and sexually. He said Gordon had a thing for little boys and that he had abducted, raped, and eventually murdered four of them in the past six months. Sanford said he feared for his life and, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in case there was any iota of doubt in Jessie's mind that her creepy uncle his terrifying eyes, you'll see in the pictures, was capable of doing those things. During the two days she spent there, sorry, the first two days she spent there, she was there in total for a week, which is even scarier. He managed to attack and try to rape her. So she was there for two days. This guy's already trying to do something awful. And she ended up staying, she had to stay for a whole week. Oh my gosh. I'm assuming because her transportation had been organized and she couldn't just go back to Canada no. So, yeah. But after the week was up, Jessie made it back to Canada and immediately told her mother and the authorities everything she had learned. Initially, there were concerns over immigration issues, so the U.S. Immigration Service was looped into the whole affair to determine the facts, and they found out that Jessie was telling the truth. Gordon Stewart Northcutt was born in Bladworth, Saskatchewan, Canada, and raised in British Columbia. He moved to Los Angeles, California with his parents in 1924, And two years later, Gordon and his parents were joined by Sanford. Let's talk about Gordon for a minute. Okay. Shall we? Gordon Stewart Northcott was born on November 9th, 1906 to parents Sarah Louise Northcott and Cyrus George Northcott. Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Gordon's birth year? Sure. What was 1906 like? Okay. So the Wright brothers were granted a U.S. patent for their flying machine. Ooh. C.C. Brown created the Hot Fudge Sunday at his ice cream shop on yeah. Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. Oh, same place, eating Hot Fudge Sundays. The first air conditioner was invented. So much air conditioning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, J. Stewart Blackington released the world's first animated film called Humor's Face- Phases of Funny Faces. Oh, The San Francisco earthquake and fire destroyed 75% of the city, and we talked about that in our last episode at the Spreckles Mm -hmm. Mansion. The Devil Tower in Wyoming became the first national monument. The average life expectancy was 49 years old. Ooh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Women were like 52. Men were like 50, 46 or something. Popular baby names were John and Mary. Boring. Um, so this one, my brother made fun of me for today because I was doing these facts while he was over and I was just like, did you know that in 1906, the word dandy meant awesome and him and John both were like, doesn't it still kind of mean awesome? (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, I guess I was thinking of like a dandy boy. (laughs) Oh no. I'm like fine and dandy. I know. But again, all I was thinking of was what we do in the shadows documentary. So good. (laughs) Anyway, um, oh my God, Winston Churchill had the best-selling fiction book called Coniston. 
Wow. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? The Olympic Games were held in Athens. The musical George Washington opened on Broadway. Forward passes were legalized in football because I had to go like well, theater well, well. to sports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the number one song was Buffalo Rag by Vessel Osman. Mm-hmm. But a crowd favorite is one most of us know well. What is it? <clears throat> Are you going to sing? You're a grand old rag. You're a high-flying flag. And forever in peace, may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love. The home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true. Wonder red, white, and blue. Where there's never a boast or brag. But should all acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on the grand old rag. It's a rag? They but it said was rag. all flag. Holy yeah. moly. You just blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Grand old rag. It's got a lot of patter in it early on. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie didn't choose the chorus initially. She I chose didn't. the verse. And I the had verse the verse. Is hard. It was good. Oh, man. It's so many words. Ready? Hold on. Oh. We can sit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> songs and they sound like this <laughs> oh my <laughs> that was the part i was trying to sing before and it did not go well yeah she chose that part <laughs> over the part everybody knows well i wanted to get through all of it because it was so fun to sing <laughs> <laughs> i practiced it all in the car right God here damn it too much of a challenge you guys <laughs> anyway that was the big song in 1906 oh man so well, very patriotic here. i mean like 1906 was kind of a fun time, and this guy's terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Gordon uh, also had a very strange upbringing. His father abused him both physically and sexually, starting at a very early age. According to Gordon's mother, the whole family had an abusive and incestual relationship. She said that everyone in the household abused Gordon when he was a child. Like, oh. everyone just took turns molesting him. The fuck? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gourd. She also claimed that in reality, she was Gordon's grandmother and that Gordon was the product of incest between his father and his sister. Okay, like, don't lie about being someone's mother. They always turn out to be a murderer. You have Mm -hmm. to not do that. But this has never been confirmed either, so I can't, this is neither here nor there. This is something she said. She also said that she herself had both a sexual and a romantic relationship with Gordon. Her words... Not mine. That doesn't happen with a child. That's called rape and grooming. But she said they had, they were like, that was also her boyfriend Hmm. and her son and her grandson. It's a lot. So, so many sons. A lot of relationships that you have there with that person. The Northcuts left Canada for Los Angeles, California in 1924. And in 1925, Gordon asked his father to purchase a plot of land in Wineville, California. On this land, he and his father, 
who was a construction worker by trade, built a chicken ranch and a house. And his nephew, Sanford, was brought in to help them with this project. Okay. Gordon was a horrible creep who began abducting young boys and sexually abusing them almost the instant he had his own home. Though when he started, he would bring them to his house and rape them and then bring them back home. But as we all know from knowing too much about murderers, and let's face it, we all know too much about murderers, that's never enough. He was always going to escalate, so of course he did just that. But we'll get back to that in a moment. Let's jump back over to 1928 for a second. On August 31st, 1928, two immigration service inspectors, Judson F. Shaw and George W. Scalorn, visited Gordon's chicken ranch, and when they left, they took Sanford Clark with them. Thank God. Mm. Northcott had seen the agents driving up the long road to his ranch, and before fleeing into the tree line, which lined the edge of his property, he told Sanford to stall them, and if he didn't, he would shoot Sanford in the head with his rifle from the tree line. So to recap, Gordon's solution to the police arriving at his murder farm was to take to the trees. <laughs> all right, we're all caught up. Okay. Finally, when Sanford was well into custody, he and felt that like the police around him could actually protect him, mm-hmm. he told them that Gordon had fled. Gordon and his mother who thought that she was his grandmother and a little bit his girlfriend, Sarah Louise, fled to Canada, but were arrested near Vernon, British Columbia, on September 19, 1928. Mm -hmm. But due to errors in the extradition paperwork, they were not delivered to Los Angeles police until November 30th of 1928. Okay, so they never made it to Canada. No, they did, and that's where they they arrested them. Oh, I'm sorry. Because the police got that letter, and they were like, "Get, get these people in Canada, they're the worst. And Canada was like, okay, 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 and they got him. So Sanford testified at Sarah Louise's sentencing, that's Gordon's mother, or grandmother, or girlfriend, depending on what you want to call her. Sanford testified that Gordon had kidnapped, molested, and beaten, uh, and killed three young boys with his mother and Sanford himself helping in the process. Mm. Sanford confessed to his hand in the killings. But he also said that anything he had done, his uncle had forced him to do, which I believe. He's this, like, young boy who had been abused and molested since the second he arrived there, and he was probably terrified. He's watching his uncle kill boys that are relatively his age, too. So he's like, oh, he he could kill me, Mm -hmm. obviously. Sanford also testified about the murder of a fourth young man, a Mexican citizen, after which... Gordon had forced Sanford to help him dispose of the victim's head by burning it in a fire pit and then crushing the skull. Gordon stated in his own later confession that he, quote, left the headless body by the side of the road near Puente because he had no other place to put it. Mm. Fresh out of body spots, Mm -hmm. even though he was Mm -hmm. the first one. Sanford said that when Gordon brought the boys back to the ranch after abducting them, what he would do was keep them out in the chicken coop, where he would repeatedly visit them to molest and rape them until he got tired of them. Then he would take them out to the... It's unclear as to what I should really call this. It is a separate building where baby chickens would hatch. Right. So I'm not sure if this is some sort of incubating situation or if this is where, like, the hens roost and they hatch babies. But either way, he would take these little boys out there 
and show them chicks. He'd be like, look at the baby birds. And the boys would, of course, be interested and distracted. And while they were looking at the chicks, mm. he would kill them with an axe blow through the back of the head. That's so nauseous. Yeah, that's terrible. After they were dead, their bodies would be cut up and buried near chicken coops in near the chicken coops, sorry, in shallow graves. But before that, he would cover the bodies with like earth, like he would bury them. He would cover them in a layer of quicklime to dissolve the body and then put dirt over the top. Okay. Authorities, after hearing Sanford's story of what happened, went out to the ranch and found three shallow graves in the exact spot that Sanford told them they would be located. It was found, however, that these graves did not contain complete bodies, but only parts of bodies. During testimony from both Sanford and his sister, Jessie, authorities learned that the bodies had been dug up by Gordon and his mother, Sarah Louise, on August 4th, 1928. They had then taken most of the remains out into like a deserted area of the woods by the ranch and burned them to ash. Their complete bodies were never recovered. Hmm. The evidence found in the graves consisted of, quote, 51 parts of human anatomy, and those silent bits of evidence of human bones and blood have spoken and corroborated the testimony of living witnesses. So this is a very fancy way of saying that they only found bits and pieces. They found, like, tissue, Mm -hmm. bone fragments, blood, but not actual, like, bodies. While Gordon and Sarah Louise were being held in British Columbia awaiting extradition to California, Sarah Louise herself confessed to the murders, including specifically the murder of Walter Collins. Hmm. But before being extradited to California, she retracted her confession, as did Gordon, who at the same time as his mother was confessing, had confessed to killing more than five boys. So they confessed a bunch of shit in Canada and then said, never mind. Right. Well, then they left Canada and were like, what? What happened? Yep. (laughs) After Sarah and her son had been extradited from British Columbia to California, she once again confessed, specifically to Walter Collins' death, and pleaded guilty to killing him. She was not put on trial upon pleading guilty. Um, I don't know why. And Superior Court Judge... Morton sentenced her to life in prison, sparing her the death sentence because she was a woman, which she entered into on December 31st, 1928. During her sentencing hearing, Sarah Louise also said some real wild things. She claimed that her son was innocent, which is outrageous enough, but also that he was the illegitimate son of an English nobleman and that she was Gordon's grandmother, as we said before, that he was the result of incest between her husband and their daughter. She also stated that as a child, this is when she told everybody everything. She's like, also, everybody in the house sexually abused Gordon. He had a really hard time. (laughs) But I love him, and I'd do anything for him. And we might be a little bit in love, but whatever. So she just, like, spouted off all of this nonsense in court. Oh, boy. She served her sentence at Tehachapi State Prison and was paroled after less than 12 years. Wild. Uh Uh-huh. She died in 1944. Now, it has been long suspected that Sarah tried to take the blame to save Gordon, whom she was in love with, maybe. Sarah also would take a hand in the killings, and it was, she said, we can't corroborate any of this, that it was her idea to have Sanford do the same because he had seen too much. 
This way, if they all took part in the killing, all of them would be guilty if Gordon was discovered, and therefore there would be less of a chance that anyone would snitch for fear of self-incrimination. Okay. So much for that, though, considering everybody told everything. Right. Gordon Northcott was implicated in the murder of Walter Collins, but because his mother, Sarah Louise, had already confessed and been sentenced for it, the state chose not to prosecute Gordon in that murder. But that statement doesn't touch on what he did to poor Christine. Remember Christine from the beginning? Walter's mother? Mm-hmm. After his initial confession, Gordon tried to deny that he had killed Christine's son, Walter. He denied it in a court of law. He denied it to the police. And then later, he denied it to Christine herself. Christine chose to believe that her son was still alive, in spite of all the evidence, and really what parent wouldn't hold out hope. And so, she corresponded with Gordon Northcott while he was in prison. <gasps> yeah, she wrote him a bunch of letters, pleading for any information about her son, and Gordon wrote back the whole time. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. In early 1929, Gordon Northcott's trial was held before Judge George R. Freeman in Riverside County, California. Gordon, meanwhile, had chosen to go the Ted Bundy route and defend himself in court, which he would just wildly question himself and then flip around and answer his own question. Like, why did you do it? Well, I don't know. I love those boys. But tell me, why did you do it? We were in love and we had a relationship and I didn't anticipate killing them. You didn't anticipate. This is exactly what happened in court. He had this, like, conversation with himself. One-sided. Bundy wasn't that nuts, at least. No, but... Oh, man. Mm -hmm. And that is what he said. He said he had, like, romantic relations with these boys, which is, of course, false. But that's what he told himself when he asked him questions. Right. Fucking <laughs> oh, nuts. This is what? I know. Okay. That kind of, like, dog and pony show never goes well. Mm -mm. The jury heard that he kidnapped, molested, tortured, and murdered the Winslow brothers and Alvin Gothea in 1928. On February 8th, 1929, the 27-day trial ended with Gordon being convicted of all three murders. And on February 13th, 1929, Judge Freeman sentenced him to death by hanging. Gordon then told Christine Collins that before he died, he would tell her the truth about what happened to her son if she came to see him in person. Christine received permission to do so, and went to see Gordon right before his execution. When she got there, Gordon changed his mind and said, quote, I don't want to see you. And when Christine confronted him, he said, I don't know anything about that. I'm innocent. And then they let him off. <sighs> what a dick move. It was speculated that Gordon may have killed as many as 20 boys, but the state of California could not produce evidence to support that speculation. He was hanged on October 2nd, 1930, at San Quentin State Prison. He was just 23 years old. When he did that, he was like 21. He was very young. Christine, meanwhile, won a lawsuit against Captain Jones, the man who pushed Walter 2.0 on her, and locked her up in the psychiatric ward of a hospital. She was awarded a judgment of $10,800. Captain Jones, however, never paid. Oh, my gosh, this poor woman. Uh-huh. Christine spent the rest of her life searching for her lost son, and she died in 1964 and was buried in Los Angeles. If you guys want to see Christine's story, the Clint Eastwood movie The Changeling is based on her and Walter, and mm. to some extent, 
the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. So you can check that out if you want. Wineville also changed its name to Miraloma on November 1st, 1930, in a large part because of all the crazy negative publicity surrounding the Chicken Coop Murders. I was going to say because I don't recognize. Mm-mm, they changed that real quick. Uh, Wineville Avenue, Wineville Road, Wineville Park, and other geographic references do, though, provide signposts to the community's former name. Mm. Sanford Clark returned to Saskatoon, where city records indicate that he died on June 20th, 1991. So he had a nice long life. Mm. He was buried in the Saskatoon Woodlawn Cemetery on August 26th, 1993. Arthur Hutchins, the famed imposter, would grow up to sell concessions at carnivals, and even made his way back to California as a horse trainer and jockey. He died of a blood clot in 1954, leaving behind a wife and young daughter named Carol. He did eventually issue a full apology to Christine Collins and the state of California. Quote, My dad was full of adventure, Carol Hutchins told People magazine. In my mind, he could do no wrong. Hmm. Did he ever get to meet that actor? I don't know. It didn't <laughs> say. Tom Mix who was very successful and knew nothing mm-hmm. about any of this. He was like, wait, what? What? <laughs> I'm just a cowboy. <laughs> and that is the story of the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. Oh, my gosh. I That's really sad mm-hmm. and gross. And I know. Sad. Christine Collins' story is awful. Yeah. And those, like, backwood shitty people. Ugh. Ugh. I know. Angelina Jolie played her, though. Yeah. So, like. Well, she paid the mom. Yeah, she played yeah. Christine. So in the end, like, Christine, at least somebody, like, really, really pretty and awesome played her. For sure. <laughs> so that's like going for. Wow. Yeah. It has, that story has so many twists and turns and parts. It's crazy. So. Toast? Toast. All right. Uh, to Christine Collins. Because holy shit, did she go through hell. Yes. To Christine. And to the families of... Um, all the other boys who lost their lives to fucking this monster. Cheers to them. Cheers. To all the family. And uh, we have anybody else? We have a patron. Yay! A new patron! Yes. To Brandy Miller for being a best fiend forever. Cheers, Brandy Miller! We love you. I think that's all for this week. Yeah. Whew. Uh, if you want... More of our opinions on this, you can be a patron and tune in to Host Mortem afterwards, mm-hmm. where we will talk about ridiculous things, undoubtedly, and also this case. Yep, yep. And if we were trusting enough to accept a ride from a smiling stranger, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I'm going to start yelling that in my house. Code 12! <laughs>